What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Grandstand cricket. With a splendid innings for New Zealand. But they are all out for 372. Another test is done and dusted. Now it's time for some post-match parlay with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The Final Word with ABC Grandstand. Hello and welcome to the Final Word podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, the Red Bull summer is over. We have all of the action from Sydney or lack of action in Sydney coming up at the start of the show and into a bit of a summer in review so far. Jeff, you've got something hanging around your neck though. What have you What have you done yesterday? I gather you've had a good day on the field. Uh, look, it's certainly important in the Test Match podcast to talk about the Yarra Pub Cricket League before anything <laughs> else. Uh, fourth season there, first Man of the Match award or the, the Dan of the Day as the Dan O'Connell award is handed out. How, how did you... How did you in this. You haven't actually told me what you did to win the man of the match. Oh, look, it's, a, it's an epic story, an epic tale. Look, after a few brilliant saves in the field uh, out on the boundary line at the deep backward point and so on, you know, I was already in the game. Uh, we had a, a big crew of players come down, 23 players. Uh, so everyone bowled one over and we bowled out the opposition from the last ball of the 23rd over. How perfect's that? Um, <laughs> but of course, you know, the telling over just when the retirees were coming back at the end and were getting ready to cut loose. Uh, one over, two wickets for four runs. Oh, what can I say? Well, your leg breaks out the back of the hand. Uh, no, I just went back to a, a bit of seam up, but there was a little bit of dip around, and uh, also just a beautiful plan where I floated one down leg side, and the the bloke played a big sweep shot and knocked his own stumps over. That's the one I definitely set up for sure. Beautiful. Well, from the most of amateur cricket to the most professional cricket, Jeff, we were in Sydney, but it didn't really feel like much a Test match when the rain came tumbling down for the better part of three days. But I don't know, maybe it was appropriate that it was a fairly underwhelming end to the series, given how poor the cricket cricket was from the West Indies principally for the two tests that preceded it. 11.2 overs in three days was what we sat there looking at um, and we're reduced to just looking up songs that had rain in them. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it wasn't necessarily a great uh, exhibition of cricket, but I was a bit frustrated because that's the first time the West Indies batted relatively well. They made over 300 at least batting first and, you know, even though there wouldn't have been huge pressure on Australia, there might have been some. I was frustrated the whole series with Jason Holder winning the toss and then bowling, you know, whereas if they'd been able to do that, put 330, 350 on, the opposition still has to make them. I took a bit from what Jason Holder said after the game about making 300 runs in an innings, which was part of the reason why he didn't declare when Steve Smith put the deal to him. So those who didn't pick this up along the way, Steve Smith and Darren Lehman cooked up a deal where they were going to get the West Indies to declare and in turn try and create a fourth day 
day run chase, a fifth day rather run chase, despite all of the rain. And part of the reason Holder said no was that they haven't made 300 in an innings all tour. They wanted to prove that they could make that milestone, and I thought that was a perfectly worthy explanation. I thought that I thought that was very important for them to do, and it, it just seemed it was just really bad grace by Steve Smith to come out and go, "Oh, these guys, you know, weren't weren't up to it, weren't willing to take on the challenge, or whatever form of words it was that he put it in." Now, this is a captain who, in I can think of three previous Test matches where he's batted through until lunch on the fifth day to just kill a contest twice against India in his first uh, mm. season when he was filling in, and then uh, against New Zealand at Perth uh, when they were what, 280-odd ahead overnight, mm. could have declared then, batted on until 380 or whatever it was. And it's just hypocrisy. If you're not willing to set up a run chase for opponents, then don't complain when they won't set one up for you. They didn't bowl poorly, though. They could have created a result in their own right had the rain stayed away. It was going to be an absolute raging turn. You could just tell from day one the ball was turning square from Nathan Lyon, which he isn't commonly doing. And yeah. Steve O'Keefe picked up a few wickets and looked all right. And I know you enjoyed his celebration from the first one. That snaffle at short leg from Joe Burns at the start of the summer. We were saying he was thoroughly ill-equipped to play in that position at short leg, but took that great catch and they went nuts at, in the huddle. Uh, it was absolutely epic. I remember saying at the time it was like it was 4am on the dance floor at Revolver. Like he, <laughs> he was nine Red Bulls deep. He was just <laughs> fist pumping. He was grabbing his mates. He was, ah! Um, you would be excited. First test wickets at home, but also frustrated. Gets picked for a Bangladesh tour that gets cancelled and then uh, gets picked for a Sydney test where he gets to bowl a few overs, 20, 22 overs or so, takes three wickets, but doesn't actually get to put himself into the match. I think he will be with Nathan Lyon partnered up in Sri Lanka later this year. They've got a three-test series there where it's going to be integral that two spinners play, and they've effectively said by picking O'Keefe that he'll be the second spinner for that tour. And now just getting those few wickets just gets the monkey off the back ever so slightly. He didn't perform that well in the UAE last year, and I think that he's better placed now than he otherwise would have been. Yeah, he's just got to trust himself as well because I was talking to Simon Kadic about him when I was writing an article about O'Keefe and, and he said, look, Steve O'Keefe's not going to ever surprise you. He's not going to do anything um, really revelatory with the ball. He does the same thing, but he's incredibly consistent and he gets wickets because he just keeps putting it in the right spot time after time and it's patience and he manages to, to wear batsmen out, basically. When did Nathan Lyon become this incredibly uh, challenging strike bowler yeah. to face? Like Nathan Lyon, with what you mentioned then about being a bloke that throws the ball in the same area repeatedly and makes you play. That's what Nathan Lyon was until about 12 to 18 months ago. Yep. And now he's one of the most dangerous penetrative bowlers in world cricket. He's nearing the peak of his powers. He's a loop spinner. He's got swagger as well. He's got strut. Yeah. He comes into his post-match interviews, sort of bit of bit of swag. You know, I mean, he's not uh, doesn't necessarily have the physique to go with it. I've described him before as looking like a bag of coat hangers. Um, <laughs> but, he, but he kind of jangles in and, and, and now he's, he's strutting. He feels good. I was comforted by Carlos Brathwaite doing a job for the West Indies in the mm. third test match as well, making uh, 69, wasn't not. I think he made 69 yet. And he, and, he, and he did it with some big power hitting, two huge sixes off James Pattinson in the same over, an inside out over cover, then a, a clip off his toes over square leg and within three balls of each other. Mm. And I said before the series, having watched him play in the West Indies this the last winter, that I thought he might be something. Didn't get a game in the first test, bowled fairly pedestrian-like in the first innings, but really showed that he might be the sort of guy that could bat number seven long-term, and that's a small positive to take from the tour. Oh, absolutely. Great affinity with Carlos Brathwaite in that, you know, I'm six foot five and bowl half as slow as I probably should. <laughs> by the looks. So that's how you get your wickets, me and Carlos. But obviously a slightly better player there. But he's he just cares. That's what I liked about it. He came out in Melbourne and he said um, that, that Bravo's innings where he just blocked out when he was 15 off 102 or whatever it was, uh, Carlos Brathwaite said that's, that spurred him on to go, someone mm. needs to go out there and fight with him. And he did. And uh, that's, that's what they need. Now let's jump into Time Machine and go back to the start of the 
test match summer. Because back when we started this podcast, we were talking about should Steve Smith bat three or four? Who's going to replace Michael Clark? Who's going to replace Chris Rogers? And mm-hmm. all of those debates have been effectively put to bed. And probably kudos to the selectors. And we're not the first ones to always tell the selectors that they've done a great job. But on this occasion, going with Burns and Kwaja and sticking with them seems to have paid dividends. Yeah, I think the thing that we've get frustrated with with selections um, where people do arc up is when it's inconsistent in terms of its rationale. Now, if you come in at the start of the summer and the rationale is Joe Burns is our next opener, Kawaj is our three, that's how it's supposed to be, then uh, you can't get frustrated when they stick to that. You know, And dropping Sean Marsh was necessary to say, well, the, the, here's who we picked at the start of the summer. We're going to stay with them. So when there is consistency, that's when we are happy with the selectors. And Kawaj has looked class from the moment he walked out on day one at Brisbane. That's probably one of the highlights of the summer for me, just how beautifully he batted the first chance he had to assert why he got picked. I mean, there was a yep. lot of controversy. Not a lot. There was a, a fair degree of uncertainty about his spot in the side because he didn't really have the numbers racked up on the board at domestic level. He had a severe injury to his knee the previous season. It just looks like he was one they were backing on faith rather than on form. Yep. And he immediately showed that, that he's the sort of player who could play in the Australian side for 10 years. And even something like going back to the Big Bash for that mm. sort of warm-up to test his knee and making 100. Now, I know it's not the same form of cricket, but there's something about when a guy is in a particular run of good form. That's telling. I remember David Warner doing it. I think this this season he made his first two test centuries. It was the Matador. When he went back to the Matador Cup and made a double 100. There was that There was that to get him... No, that was sort of a couple of years ago to get him sort of into the side. Um, that was around... Before, that was before, before the, before the ashes. return Ashes. Yeah, it was. But in 2011... He made that first ton in Hobart, and he made that ton against India at the Wacker. And I think from memory, between those two games, he played. Uh, he opened for the Sydney Thunder one day and made a century opening. And it was just that that told me that he's in this kind of form. He's this kind of belief. Like this player has momentum. He's going to make it. And yes, it's Kawhi like they're, it's like they're above. It's like they're above the standard now. Yes. They're no longer. They're no longer state players. They are yes. national players who come back to state cricket for for a tune up rather than to have to validate their skills. Yes, those who didn't validate their skills as well as they could have with the New Zealand side earlier in the summer, they widely disappointed. This was a chance for New Zealand to beat Australia for the first time on our on our soil for thirty years, and they just looked like they were completely shell-shocked on day one, and that took about seven days of cricket to overcome. Yeah, well, the same on day one at Perth. You know, they came out looking like they weren't sure what they were supposed to do, and then even from day two, they bowled so much better, restricted mm. the scoring, bowled Australia out. You know, by then, the, the match was already gone, but then they had the resolve to bat to get themselves back into the game and at least draw it. But, yeah, deeply frustrating, and we're, you know, we're, of course, talking up the tour over there in February saying there'll be a real challenge on their home soil, but will they? I mean, they have to They have to bring what they could have brought and not what they did bring to Australia. Yeah, if they're going to concede 244 runs to David Warner on day one of any test match like they did in, in Perth. Now, he was in rare form that day, and yep. obviously it was very favourable batting conditions, as we saw with Ross Taylor also making 290 later in the test match, and Kane Williamson made a ton, and as did uh, Steve Smith and, and Adam Voges in the second inning. So it was, they were very favourable conditions, but all the same, um, they're not going to be in a position over in the return leg to allow Warner to get off the hook like that. No, I mean, they're going to need to bowl, um, sort of probably bowl first and bowl devastatingly, mm. and it could happen. Some of the tracks they've been playing Sri Lanka on in the last few weeks, New Zealand, you know, look like lawn bowls, sort of greens. They're just That's can... exciting, though. I hope they produce the track like they did at Hamilton for that test match against Sri Lanka, the second test. I'd love to see a green seamer and really play to their strengths, or their perceived strengths. Now, of course, the Australian bowling lineup won't be as strong in New Zealand as it otherwise could be with Mitchell Stark not there and we you know that might be one of the most pivotal yeah. moments of the summer when he went down to Adelaide because he won't be back for well till the middle of the year they're talking about now the, the, the limited overs series is over there so 
you think that this is not going to be the strongest Australian bowling lineup. So New Zealand have a comparative advantage there ever, ever so slightly. Maybe not stronger than the Australian attack, but that is their strength with the they, ball. They at least know the conditions and know exactly where to mm. put it. And, and even the hour or two it might take to start making those adjustments can be the difference sometimes um, between a visiting side being able to get on top or not. I don't think Stark's necessarily key to the test attack because I don't think he's he hasn't been the dominant player in a test match yet. He hasn't been a dominant bowler in a test match. He hasn't really affected the outcome of a test match greatly more than anybody else on the field, but uh, they like having him around. Understandably, he is the strike bowler, though. With Johnson going down, he's effectively the senior pace bowler. He's been around the longest and has the most amount of pressure on his shot. It's assuming Siddle doesn't play all the time. Siddle will play bits and pieces and probably will play New Zealand, but he's not going to be the, the mainstay of the attack the way that Mitchell Stark will be. And that was really quite noticeable when Johnson finished up on day five in Perth and the first day of the next test match is when Stark went down. So effectively in, in two days of test cricket, you lose two guys who are must selects for the test 11. Yep. And, and, you know, there was a fair degree of pressure on Josh Hazelwood at Adelaide, which we'll come to in a moment. And he really stepped up and he's the leader of the attack when, when Stark isn't there. But there'll be more pressure on a foreign tour when he's got to deliver without the support bowls around him as well. Yeah, look, I, I almost thought that was the best thing that could have happened to the Australian attack. When when Johnson and Stark both dropped out in quick time, it forced the others, it forced Hazelwood to take the lead. As mm. I said at the time, he grew as a bowler when he knew that he had to be the man to win that test, and he did it. Um, Siddle was there as strong support. You know, he's the kind of bowler you want in New Zealand where he does have accuracy and he can move it around. And if they're, if they're playing to the conditions, they might look at some similar types of bowlers like Jackson Bird or, you know, these kind of guys who are a little bit slower but are going to have the accuracy in the movement. Now, the centrepiece of the summer, or the Test Match summer, was definitely the Adelaide Day-Night inaugural pink ball <clears throat> test match. I think yeah, that, that... That's what we'll remember the summer for. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for many reasons, it was the history of the ball, the time of day, but there was other things about it too. It was, a, it was a test match that would have decided the series. Had New Zealand won that, and they easily could have, with a couple of things going their way, it would have been a drawn series. And, 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 and the pink ball held up, and the track worked, and it was an exciting test match. And really, it's a month later, and I'm still thinking it was, without a doubt, one of the most pivotal sort of cricket... It was history. We, we witnessed yeah. something substantial. And we saw both teams come to the party. You know, it, it was it was one of those tests where both sides struggled to make two hundred across mm. each of their innings. You know, barely got there. If New Zealand had managed to set another thirty runs, they probably would have won. Sure. Um, given the way Australia were, were going down in that run chase, um, small run chase, but you know the ball just constantly moving a little bit, and Siddle getting his two hundredth wicket in that game was was a big moment and of course the Phil Hughes moment day one just that very understated tribute and I think it, it sort of felt right that they didn't overblow that but but some tribute was needed given that was Adelaide was the scene of such intense emotion a year before just after he died. Yeah it, did, it definitely added a, a different element to the day one at Adelaide which had nothing to do with cricket but was important and yeah the Siddle 200th wicket and similarly with his grandmother um, passing away a couple of days later there was a lot of emotional um, secondary plots, if you like, to that story. But it also magnified the, the strong performances with the bat. Peter Neville, we have not spoke about on the final word this summer. Haven't but, had to. But we haven't had to. He's been very tidy behind the stumps, like a, like a football umpire. If you yeah. don't talk about them, they're doing their job well. Same yeah. thing goes with the wicketkeeper. Neville was incredibly tidy behind the wickets and, and, and made a co- valuable contribution with the bat when he was yeah. called upon. Was in called upon innings. once, essentially. It was only needed once. And it was match winning. Yeah. You could have made him conceivably the man of the match in that test match due to the contribution. You know, he was yeah. the most important player. 
thought it was the highest score of the match. 66. 60, yeah, 61, I think it was. But it was the most important score of that test match. And it was at a time that was integral because Australia had collapsed, including the captain, Steve Smith, running down the wicket and playing a, a fanciful shot. And, and it was very exciting, don't get me wrong, New Zealand fighting their way back into that test match on, on morning two or, or afternoon two, first session of day two. We always got confused with the, the timings of that when we were over there. But that the, the match was there for the winning for New Zealand. And, and if not for that DRS decision, we won't go on about it again, but who knows, it may have been the case that we would have seen a different result in the tight series. Yeah, but the, the energy at the ground, the, um, the, the enthusiasm with which people adopted it, you could feel it just walking down to the ground sort of at midday a couple of hours mm. before the first ball of duty be bowled. The, the city was bubbling um, and then sort of going out back into the social area after the day's play and just this incredible party going on. And, you know, I, I spoke about um, having, going down there. To shoot, we, we went down to shoot that yeah. video with Jim Maxwell and he, he's getting the rock star treatment. People are queuing up to get their shirts signed and the stuff. You know, there was just a, a beautiful life to the whole thing. Yeah, the colours in the sky. It was like, you know, explosions after dark type thing going on up there with all the purples and the reds and the oranges and, and seeing Trent Bolt come in with the new ball and pick up Dave Warner and, 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 the, and the electric... Yeah. atmosphere in the stadium was, is something I'll remember through. Suddenly the result was on. The New Zealand win was on. Absolutely. And it was a bit of a come down then to go to Hobart where it was uh, you know, a bit cold, a bit underattended, and the West Indies really didn't turn up in that first test. This is The Final Word with ABC Grandstand. You're back with The Final Word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Now that West Indies series, Jeff, underwhelming as well as we said at the start. It just didn't feel right, but the worst thing of it all was that even the really small expectations we had for it beforehand weren't met. And I wonder whether this is something we'll look back on in 10 years' time, and I really sincerely hope we'll say there was a big floodlight shine on West Indies cricket, which made the rest of the cricket world stand up and go, we have a big problem here. I hope it's not 10 years down the track we go, that was the beginning of the end, and they don't play test cricket anymore. Yeah, I mean, do you think that's necessarily the case? Like, when they tour England and do badly, people in England would think about it a lot more, but would they be thinking about it more because they've toured Australia, or are we just more aware of it here? I think the prime time slots they have at Boxing Day and the New Year's Test, the whole cricket world knew this was a thing before what happened we were talking about it there was a lot of you know, negative vibes sliding around before they even took the field and down at Hobart that's one of the worst displays I've seen from a test playing nation they never looked like taking a wicket really apart from the first morning and then had two blokes go out and bat for an entire day and barely leave third gear what did they take 10, 10 wickets in three tests that is right 10, ten wickets in three tests yeah, yeah. That, that says a fair bit you know whereas, whereas Australia never once had to be for, well Australia never had a side against them this summer yeah um, uh, you know, declare. And by contrast, the West Indies only took 10 wickets across three test matches. But especially down in Hobart, like then losing 20 wickets in a day, that really underscored all of our worst fears. And mm. even though there was some superb individual contributions, particularly from Adam Voges and, and Sean Marsh, that felt somewhat hollow going into Melbourne. Didn't feel right. Didn't feel like a test match. Yeah, and uh, there was a little bit of ground clawed back in Melbourne. You know, they did chip away and, and actually certainly outgunned thoroughly but put in some effort, Carlos Brathwaite, as we talked about, um, Darren Bravo and so on, actually working for the team. And maybe it was almost lucky for the West Indies that all of that rain came in Sydney, um, but maybe it was unfortunate because maybe if they'd been beaten again soundly in Sydney, it might have been a bit more momentum behind things need to change, whereas maybe now people, particularly the West Indies cricket board back home, are sort of able to go, oh, well, we got out of it with a you know, 2 nils, not two so nil bad loss. touring Australia, um, and, and they're able to sweep it under the carpet a bit more. Yeah, we've both invested a lot of words in this, both written and spoken about the, the, the challenges of West Indies cricket, we can only hope they turn it around. From, for Australia's part in this series, I think, again, the, the major talking point leading into Melbourne 
Melbourne in particular was that do they bring Kawaja back in favour of Marsh? Do they keep Burns? There was a sort of a suggestion that they, they may tinker with what they agreed with before Brisbane, but they stuck fat, and I was buoyed by that. And Burns coming out and making 100 on day one, likewise Kawaja, probably, again, Kawaja looking superb in doing so. I think that's the stuff that we can, I, you know... Th- they're not the most valuable prize test runs that these guys are ever going to make. But in terms of establishing their own confidence in the 11 and knowing they're going to go to New Zealand as integral senior members of the team, that's not for nothing. I look at those kind of runs, you know, statistically speaking, as fat. You know, it's like the hunter-gatherer sort of lifestyle when there's a plentiful season in the summer, you gorge yourself on whatever you can get to build up the fat reserves so that you can get through the winter when times are leaner. Um, statistics aren't the be-all and end-all, but they are used to, to put pressure on players. You know, oh, this guy's his average has dropped under 40 or whatever it is, and, and, and they start to get sort of people on their back because of numbers. Now, if you can really cash in against uh, sort of maybe a less challenging team when conditions are favourable, get your tally of runs up, get your average up, all of those things. It makes you better able to weather some tough patches later on, which will come along for these players. Yeah, I think that's well put. Take Usman Khawaja, who was unlucky in his first couple of stints in the Australian side, only managed to clock up 11 tests and average mid-30s. Now he's got four more tests under his belt and averages 46. And you know now we're talking about him being a senior mainstay in the side. And his performances have reflected that. But the statistical ballast that he's provided now with making those runs, is again, these are... I think you're right. I think, you're, I think your analogy is sound, Jeff. It gives, it gives them some latitude. Adam Vogue is particularly currently averaging nearly 86 in Test cricket. That will come down, but at least it, it gives him the it affords him the opportunity to let it come down a bit. Um, Kawaja, as you say, David Warner, interestingly, um, his average dipped just below 50, and now he's got it back up over 50 um, as an opener. Now there are, there are 15 players in history, if you only count people who've batted 20 innings or more, who've got 50-plus averages as an opener. It's a very exclusive mm, club. Mm. You know, Gavaskas there, Saywag's there, but, um, a few big names, Jack Hobbs at the top, but it's very hard to do as an opening batsman, and he's currently doing it. Throwing forward to the New Zealand away trip now, that's the next challenge for this test side. I think they've pretty much laid the foundation as well as they can this summer. I'd be surprised if New Zealand did the job over there, even with Brendan McCullum's 100th test um, coming up and, and, and the idea that they can beat Australia to farewell him. I just think the psychological advantage the Australian side of it, who have won over them this summer will make it very hard work for the hosts. I think that psychological advantage can collapse in half an hour, though. If if the ball swings, Saudi and Bolt swing it, and suddenly Australia are four for 20, all that, all those thoughts of England will flood back. Um, those other collapses, you know, in South Africa and so on, I'm sure they happened mostly to different players, but that's still there in the Australian psyche, the ability to just blindly panic when on tour somewhere else, um, out of their element, out of their depth. So it's a matter of whether the conditions are going to be challenging. And I want to see them challenged. Mm. I want to see Voges and Smith make runs on tough tracks. I want to see them make runs where you think that's really worth it. You really earned that 100. Yeah, certainly um, more nourishing test match cricket to watch. I remember that New Zealand tour of 2000 when they had to go away a couple of times and make runs at five for not many. Seymour made a big 100 coming in at four for not a lot, and Damian Martin as a, as a sub-batsman. They're, they're good memories of following a very dominant Australian side when they had to do it when it was when it was rugged. Yep. So, I, again, I hope they provide conditions which are going to make it tough, and they're exposed to similar conditions like England. But, yeah, my, my, my gut is that this won't be as competitive as we hope it will be. Yeah, yeah you think? No, I don't know. I just, I just, I just can't see it. I bit just can't, of, I bit of edginess from the New Zealanders if things start to go wrong? That, that's what it comes down to. I don't think whether they have the... whether they've got a, you know, a strong enough... 
robust enough lineup to withhold any pressure themselves. And I'd, I'd imagine this will still be a fairly strong Australian bowling lineup going over and taking advantage of those conditions as well. Can we see Martin Guptill just play a one-day innings in a Test match? Because well, got, oh. he, he's just Jekyll and Hyde, isn't he? Well, he made what ninety-three off thirty balls in the one day recently. Cannot buy a run in Test cricket. Can't, like. Can't he just try the different approach? It might work. You know, try the McCullum approach. Just come out and absolutely go for it. Well, he's who I was going to use as the example. McCullum has changed the way he plays Test cricket vastly in the last, last couple of years, and it's definitely reaped dividends for him. So I hope so. He may not even keep his spot in the side cup. That's the thing. His Test form has been so ordinary, with the exception of a score against Sri Lanka recently. They might they might cast him aside, but I hope so. Now back to the end of summer, if you like. End of it's really the numbers that, that tell the story to, to to reference what we were before. Fifteen times Australian made hundreds this summer 15 mm-hmm. times that's just they didn't have a, t- a side ever declare against them that's right and Warner and Smith we've been tracking this sort of runs per test uh, Smith's still going at one uh, he's actually under one in three now he's sort of 2.9 or so mm. and Warner's at exactly one in three which are you know absolutely elite in terms of test batsmen and Adam Voges of course now averages over 500 against the West Indies 542 to be precise right. and was spared in that he didn't have to come <laughs> out in Sydney and bat at all and you know maybe saved himself a dismissal that would have sent that crashing down into the mid 250s and for his career as he said on the final, in the previous podcast that's just uh, offensive numbers yeah. and maybe we'll see him return to something veering normal against New Zealand This is the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins ABC Grandstand Final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon Just wrapping up Jeff we've got the one day series starting tomorrow in Perth and then, yeah, up to Brisbane after that. Then Canberra, Melbourne, Sydney, five of those. Three T20s against India in doubleheaders with the national women's teams as well, which would be great. Let's do some squad talk. So who's out, who's in? This one-day squad we've got in. Everybody. Everybody's in. Sean Marsh is in. Josh yep. Hazelwood, surprisingly, is in. I thought they were going to rest him this summer, but instead he's played every game. He hasn't for bowled a... that much. That's a, I mean, across yeah. the test matches, what, it didn't barely bowl in Sydney. Didn't have to bowl that much in Melbourne or Hobart. True enough. I mean, he hasn't had a proper workload. He hasn't had a five-day... Um, you know, real tough test. Mate. And there's kind of a vague suggestion that they might only play him for the first couple. They've got Joel Paris in the side, so Paris in, Midnight in Paris. I'm trying to work on Midnight in Paris, sing into mm-hmm. my writing at mm-hmm. some point. I'm sure I'll find a way through. But um, out, our, our, our boy, Michael Klinger, just can't get a start. Well, yeah, he's not out because he's never been in. Just can't get a start. Can't get picked for Australia in any format. Absolutely ludicrous. How about the line, about, how about the line from uh, Trevor Holmes about why he can't? Uh, he'll just have to keep making runs? Uh, he, I think the exact line was, he'll have to keep making runs at important times. When can he? When does he not make runs? Yeah, he's, he's basically never not made runs. There's almost no game in which he has not made runs. Um, to a degree, I can understand it. In that, uh, the whole bowling attack's new. They probably wanted to keep some stability with the batting lineup, but there is a lack of imagination where you go, "Oh, we'll pretty much just pick our test batting lineup." You know, Warner's in, Smith's in. Um, where maybe those guys don't need to play the one dayers, and, mm. and that's a chance for you to bring in some other players. I feel the reason they're picking them is because the TV broadcasters and the and the grounds will get antsy if you don't pick the big name players because people want to come and see Warner and Smith. Sure enough, um, they, they that's did the backlash. Instructively, they did punt Burns though. They thought Burns might be a long term one day international prospect when they took him to England this year, but they've given him the flick. Um, they've also not picked Nathan Lyon, which. I kind of expected they would after yeah. the language after Melbourne because he's probably going to go to India for the World well, T20. He, he absolutely should. But he, see, I don't think he will. I think the conservatism of the panel we've got at the moment will say, oh, you know, you've got Glenn Maxwell. They might take Agar, you know, sort of all-rounder type. But Agar isn't in this squad either. No, but for, for the World T20. Yeah, Melbourne. sure. But, I mean, Agar isn't. I mean, you've you got to wonder. that Agar did go to England as the principal spinner with, with mm. Maxwell spinning all-rounder. I'm so, again, they might bring these guys into the squad later in the summer or later yeah. in, the, in, the, in the series. But... 
you know, they're probably not going to bring both in, and both will almost certainly... You'd have to think both are going to India for the World T20, surely. Lion or... Lion, Lion and Agar. I don't think Lion will. I don't think they'll take him. If I think they should. Well, I think they should, but they won't. I'd be because he's not playing wickets. enough short-form cricket to really prove his case, and he's not playing it because they won't pick him. Um, so he can't do anything about it. He's stuck. But they pigeonhole him. He's the test match bowler. That's what he does. Uh, one guy that was pigeonholed as a purely white ball cricketer after he made his retirement from test cricket is... One S.R. Watson, your friend and mine. Shane Roger. I, I'm, I'm kind of not shocked that he's not picked for the one days, no. but because but, at the end of the day, they're, they're preparing for 2019 in yep. that form of the game, and I get why he's not part of that calculation. But under pressure in T20 cricket, with experience at that level played in multiple World Cups in every domestic competition you can care to play for at it, I know he's not going so well for the Thunder right now, but I think he'll be a feature of the World T20 squad. Yeah, look, I wasn't. Really surprised to not see him mm. picked here either. Um, and, you know, he, like you said, he hasn't bossed the BBL to the point that he has to get picked. But he's he's got to come into calculations for March. But whether or not, you know, we might have seen the the end of him, the end of that career, at least at international level, would make, make me very sad because there's nothing we love more than talking about Watto. He's been a dear friend to cricket <laughs> pundits and fans for, you know, well over a decade. In terms of the entertainment, the service that he's rendered, but I, I hope at least he gets to be farewelled appropriately. And you know, at least like that would be it'd be appropriate if he could go and play in that World Cup and play some part, yeah, you know, in a successful campaign. You know, and and end well, end on a high, end not with uh, what was it a dismissal in a tour game at North Northamptonshire, yeah, LBW, and, and, and tearing his hammy at Lords, yeah, or whatever it was, or his calf. Sorry, it was the old man injury, wasn't it? It was his calf at Lords in that one day. Yeah, that's right. What a sad um, demise. So, Don't worry, Shane. We'll dance again. But then there's the, the BBL. Of, it's national pastime right now to look mm-hmm. at guys playing in the BBL and saying that they should be in the World T20 squad. I'm not going to yeah, yeah. lie. I'm definitely part of this problem. I'm not part of the solution. But Chris Lynn, Lynn Sanity, I mean, you've yep. got to, he's got to be a consideration. Has to be. He, Has to go. He hits the ball further than anyone in the competition. Yep. And he seems to have this extraordinary eye. He does it from the start of his innings. He doesn't need to get in as yep. such. So he could be the sort of player that could bat at number six or number seven Travis in the T20 Head. squad. Travis I've, Head, likewise. Similar. I've watched quite a few of his innings and the way he just comes in and goes from ball one. Um, but in that T20 World Cup, I mean, it's interesting as someone who's always argued against Sean Marsh's inclusion in the test. <laughs> he side, should be there. I find myself saying, well, he's got to be in the He's got to be. Side. I can't leave him out. I'm agitating for a Sean Marsh inclusion. But I want Marsh and Klinger to open in that World T20 side. Like that, I think you've got to pick people who are in form in the format. Now, they will want to pick David Warner, but he's not necessarily your best T20 option. They'll want to pick Aaron Finch. They're in a bind there because he's the captain. Are they going to take mm. the captaincy off him and give it to Smith? Because I did it with George Bailey Smith in the World will, Cup. Smith will play. Um, but Finch, I mean, he's been going fairly well, but he's not necessarily a lock to get picked for that team on form alone if yeah. you're just picking the best players in the comp. If you want had to pick the best opening pair, it's Klinger and Marsh. Well, I, I think Marsh has got a very strong case, and don't get me wrong, I'm going to pick 30-odd players and say they should all go, yep. but Usman Khawaja... It is easy when you pick 30. It, it is, it is. But Usman Khawaja, you know, that, nah, that, that 100 slow. he made... It's too slow in the field. You yeah, know? that'd be the one thing. His defence, as they say in T20 cricket, is not up to scratch, but his offence is... That's uh, the limit. That's, that's the point where someone like, say, Glenn Maxwell can save you 20 runs in an innings. Now, that's incredibly valuable over in that sort of context. Like, yeah, he he might make 50, but even if he makes 10, he's going to effectively make 30 because he'll save a few boundaries that others won't or he'll take a catch that someone else won't, that kind of thing. That's the kind of thing where Kawaja will cost you runs. So you've got to offset that and go, well, he's, you're probably 20 runs down with him, so he's got to make sort of 
60 before he starts to make a strong contribution to the side overall. These debates are also taking place in the women's game because, of course, the World T20 is happening concurrently for men and women in India in March and April. So the Women's Big Bash League has been absolutely flying. A wonderful first four weekends of that, or well, five weekends of that competition and nearing the pointy end as well. So the sixth, the, I think. We just finished the sixth. It would have been the sixth, right? You are. So, But in, in any case, it's been uh, something where these selection speculation debates are happening at both men and women level. And We're going to take all leg spinners, aren't we? Like, that's the squad we've been picking. We're like, Amanda Wellington's got to go. Maisie Gibson's got to go. Kristen Beam's got to go. Maisie Gibson's got to go. <laughs> <laughs> King's got to go. They send them all. Send all the leggies. Yeah. It, it seems to be that. And 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 then the spin to win the the uh, the off spinners as well. Molly Strano taking fire for on TV That's last right. week. Another three for against the Thunder on Saturday. So there's there's plenty of very strong options. But we'll go into much greater depth about the BBL and the WBBL in the Australia versus India one day is next week on the final word. It's been Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Till then. <laughs>